Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. Today my guest is the most senior politician in the House of Lords, none other than Michael Howard most senior because he was leader of the Conservative Party and, of course, held one of the great offices of state. Michael, amazing after your long political career that you should want to participate so much in the Lords as you do. Uh, had, had you not sort of had enough of it? Well, I, 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 I wouldn't normally put it in this way, but I'd had <laughs> enough of the House of Commons. Um, I'd been in the House of Commons for 27 years. And and that was enough for me. Um, but I suppose the House of Lords was a natural progression. It enabled me to continue to have an interest in politics and intervene. I don't intervene all that often, but I do from time to time. Um, and so it uh, suited me very well, and I was honoured to be asked. And I was honoured to introduce you, as, but by, uh, as, as you kindly asked me to. The Howard backstory is, is an amazing one. Your parents came over or your father came over to Wales as a Romanian Jewish emigre, presumably. Yes. Uh, and that's where you were brought up. What was it like in, in, in Wales in those days? I had a very happy childhood in Llanelli. Um the, the main point of issue was that um, Llanelli is the epicenter of Welsh rugby. My grammar school had a tremendous rugby tradition and I tried to start a soccer team <laughs> and almost got expelled for my, um, for my concerns, my troubles. Um, but anyway, I mean, no, I, had a, I had a very happy time and um, very grateful for the education that Grammar School gave me. And what about anti-Semitism, which is an often talked about subject now? Were, were you... I, never, I, I never encountered it, and uh, I, my parents certainly never complained about it to me. I don't know whether they ever did. But uh, it wasn't. Um, we were very conscious of it, obviously, because it wasn't that long after the war and everything that had happened. Um, but uh, but as for direct experience, I'd never experienced it. And you then went on to Peterhouse and became part of what was loosely called the Cambridge Mafia, with the likes of Ken Clark, your great friend Norman Lamont, etc. I mean, was there a sort of Cambridge Mafia? Were there a bunch of mates? Are you friends now? There were, and we are. Um, you've mentioned Ken and Norman. Um, John Gummer was there at the same time. Norman Fowler was there at the same time. Leon Britton, um, Christopher Tugendhat, Peter Lilly, although Peter, unlike the rest of us, didn't um, play much of a part in university politics. Um, and we have remained friends, although we obviously disagree on some issues. We've remained friends and uh, until... Until the pandemic, we had an annual reunion dinner. Yeah, and of course, you form very much, all of you, the um, conservative Britain in the Thatcher and major governments, which is extraordinary, which we'll come on to later. Of course, at Cambridge and probably after, you were known for your musical prowess as a participant <laughs> Cambridge, in, no. in a skiffle band. Uh, and yeah. rumour has it you were 
you played with Lonnie Donegan, but would you like to set the record straight on this? That, that is not true. And it was before Cambridge, not at Cambridge. But before Cambridge, when I was at school, I was part of a skiffle band. Um, skiffle is... Skiffle was... Skiffle preceded rock and roll. Uh, the washboard was the main instrument. And um, my wife takes great pride in the fact that I am mentioned um, in a biography of Lonnie Donegan, which is the closest I've come to being in a band with Lonnie Donegan, who was, of course, the um, Elvis Presley of Skiffle. Yes, he was, and a huge star in those days. And you went on to become a barrister and famously were invo was involved in the Oakhampton Inquiry. Bill Bryson wrote about if you went into a pub and asked the direction to Cornwall, he would come out of the pub thinking, I've got to leave a day earlier because I've got to go through Oakhampton. Winning the inquiry at Oakhampton has given so much pleasure to all of us who, through those early years in my life, had to queue for hours going through Oakhampton. And now we can whiz past it on a bypass. What was that like? It's very controversial. And there were a lot of people who thought there shouldn't be a bypass and a lot of people who thought it should take a different route. So it was very controversial, it went on for a long time, um, to such an extent that actually Sandra, my wife, came to stay with me part of the time. We um, rented a series of cottages, and one of the local schools was kind enough to take our small children into their, into their school for a while. So um, no, it, was, uh, it was very enjoyable. And you then got involved in that part of the world again with the Defence Land Inquiry. Yes, that was an inquiry into the extent to which the Ministry of Defence should be allowed to use Dartmoor for defence training. And I remember it mainly because of the, it, it produced the best answer in cross-examination um, that I've ever heard. The, the general commanding the Royal Marines was being cross-examined by the solicitor for the Ramblers Association. And the solicitor for the Ramblers Association said, General, how would you feel? if you spent the whole of your working life in the noise and grime of our great industrial cities of the north, you chose to spend your two weeks holiday in the peace and solitude of Dartmoor, and suddenly you found yourself without any warning, beset from all sides by the noise and sound of the munitions of war. And the general didn't blink an eyelid and said, I should thank God that the defence of my country was in safe hands. <laughs> now, I think the most interesting part of your life is you met a incredibly well-known model friend of Frank Sinatra, one of the most beautiful women in the country called Sandra Poole. And I mean, we're still amazed that she fell for you, but where, where, where did you meet? So is everyone else, because, <laughs> because we, we, um, we both, as you know, do a certain amount of lecturing on cruise ships. And w one of the things we do, Sandra talks about her books, I talk about politics, but we tend to do a joint Q&A after she's talked about Sinatra and the Kennedys and all that. And the first question always is, in a tone of total astonishment, <laughs> where did you two meet? <laughs> yeah. Well, perhaps you'd like to tell us where you met. We met at a Red Cross charity dance in Hampshire. And she is, we, we talked quite a lot. Her, the party she was going with had collapsed. And so the person who was organizing that party was a friend of mine and had asked me whether they could join up 
with our party. It wasn't my party. It was the party of the person we were staying with. So I said, you have to ask them. And anyway, the upshot was we all joined up and I talked to her a lot. And she was very cross to me because I never asked her to dance. Um, He's lucky. But, <laughs> but I discovered in the course of our conversation that she had never read Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night. Mm -hmm. So a few days later, I sent her a copy of Tender is the Night. And uh, you can take it from there. <laughs> Rest is history. Amazing. And you've been together for a very long time, and she has been absolute stalwart uh, and been very successful, of course, in her own right, as you mentioned, with her books. So you're this very successful barrister, and you decide to go into politics. And it was quite a long road because you applied for God knows how many seats. Can you remember? No, I lost count. Um, but I'd always wanted. But it was to in the 20s or 30s. I would think. Um, but I always wanted to go into politics, reinforced by the people I'd known at Cambridge, um, all of whom got into the House of Commons quite a bit before I did. Um, so um, although I'd, I always wanted to do it, I'd more or less given up, um, to be honest, and was quite reconciled to a career at the bar, which I was enjoying, and happily the good conservatives of Folkestone and Hyde um, decided to give me an opportunity. Of course, you tried Liverpool, hadn't you? Or you stood I've, in Liverpool, I stood in Liverpool, which gave you yes. a great passion for the football yes. team. No, 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 no. That, I, was a, I was a supporter of Liverpool Football Club long before that, indeed. When I appeared before the selection committee at Liverpool Edgehill as a stripling of 24, they said, do you have any connection with Liverpool? And I said... Not really, except that, and it's perfectly truthful, I have always been a lifelong supporter of Liverpool Football Club, whereupon there was a deathly hush in the room <laughs> because every member of the selection committee was an Everton supporter. <laughs> and I've always thought that the fact that they selected me despite that was the single greatest achievement of my entire political <laughs> career. Anyway, you got selected in 82, and then the rise was meteoric. 85, you trade in industry and were very much involved in Big Bang. I was appointed went... by mistake. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher mistakenly thought, right, the main task of the job I was being asked to take was to take through a very long and complicated financial services bill, the first attempt, really, to regulate financial services in this country. And she thought that because I was a QC, I was the person to do it. She obviously hadn't appreciated that I had had nothing to do with financial services at all in my career. I wasn't that sort of QC or that sort of barrister. Um, so I was appointed by mistake. Um, but anyway, um, I was appointed. And then, <laughs> but you, you survived it for a while because you then went to employment. Yes. Did you not? Well, first of all, I went, no. Um, I spent uh, two and a half years as a Minister of State in the Department of the Environment. Oh, you were environment before that, which was, of course, I thought that was under Major, but it was under Thatcher. Yes, I was Secretary of State for the Environment under Major. Um, right. But I was a Minister of State, which is, of course, below that, um, under Thatcher. And we'll come to environment in a minute, because I know you were very much the vanguard. But let's deal with the Thatcher uh, situation. You were in employment. Then there became the community charge, which was the start of the 
downfall of Thatcher, you being an unbelievably loyal person, was a great Thatcher loyalist. Talk us through that period. Did you see the demise coming? What happened at that critical moment? You know, reflect, if you have a moment, on, on those years. Well, I remain a great supporter and devotee, really, of Margaret Thatcher. I think she was really the peacetime equivalent of Winston Churchill. We were on our knees in 1979, and people thought there was no way out. And she really rescued and revived the country, and she was an absolutely great prime minister. Um, I think that um, had she retired on the 10th anniversary of her prime ministership in 1989, as Dennis, her husband, wanted her to do, she wouldn't, her, her reputation wouldn't have been at all affected by some of the things that happened later on. Um, but I didn't really see her demise coming. And as it happened, I mean, I think she made some incomprehensible mistakes. I, the most astonishing of which was her first challenge the year before Michael Heseltine challenged her was from somebody called Sir Anthony Meyer, mm. who was a backbencher, who was a stalking horse, and no one expected him to come anywhere near winning. And for that contest, she appointed as her campaign manager Tristan Garrel-Jones, who was had been years in the whip's office, was absolutely the master of the machinations of the House of Commons, knew everybody, and was a superb operator. And the next year, when she faced a much more serious challenge from Michael Heseltine, for reasons which I cannot begin to understand, she appointed as her campaign manager Peter Morrison, and I'm afraid, in that role, um, Peter Morrison was useless. And had she had a... She, she only narrowly failed to yeah. get the majority she needed to avoid a second contest, a second round of a contest. And um, Tristan Gow-Jones, or almost anybody else been running her campaign, she could have done it. And actually, I think she could then have gone on. I think she would have won the 1992 election, although that is quite a... Um, an unpopular and maverick view. And you, you, you saw her, presumably, before she decided to stand down? Well, yes, she saw all the cabinet individually the day before she made her announcement. And I said to her, look, I, if you decide to stand again, I will stand with you and I will fight for you uh, to the last ditch. But I fear that if you do stand in the second round, it might be quite bad, and you might be humiliated, and I would never want to see that, which was my honest opinion. I had a PPS. I, on, the, I, on the day of the election, of the voting, as it happened, I was addressing a constituency lunch in her constituency at Finchley. And I came back from Finchley, and I saw my PPS, who is a man called Roger King, still around. He was the Member of Parliament for Northfield. He was an arch-thatcherer. And um, I talked to him, and he said, I, how can I vote for her in the second round, he said, because 
at the next election, people are going to say to me, you're asking us to make as prime minister someone who 150 of your own colleagues in the House of Commons voted against as prime minister. And I thought, my goodness, if, if he is not going to vote for her in the second round, mm. she really is going to be in trouble. So I gave her honest mm. advice. Anyway, the result was known and John Major came in. He then won the next election. You uh, became Secretary of State for the Home Office, which then was an enormous department. Because you didn't, didn't you have all the uh, crime and justice and things like that? Yes, that? it is roughly twice as big as it is now. Yeah. Because there wasn't a Department of Justice. Um, and uh, lots of the things like probation and prisons. Prisons now come under the Department of Justice. But prisons and probation came under the Home Office. I think I'm right in saying there hasn't been a Secretary of State for the Home Office who hasn't been controversial in a lot of people's eyes. You had your elements of controversy. There was the Derek Lewis issue uh, that was amplified by the Paxman interview. And at one point, you were suggesting that there should be a death penalty for certain elements of, of people who'd killed. And then, of course, there were all sorts of issues. There was Dunblane, I think, wasn't there, where you brought in some legislation on guns. I mean, it's such a difficult brief. When you look back on it, what's your sort of take on it? Well, you're not quite right about the death penalty. I, I had originally, long before, I had been in favour of um, reintroducing the death penalty, but I changed my mind about that long before I became Home Secretary. I changed my mind after the what was ultimately found to be the wrongful conviction of the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, mm. um, because I had previously thought that if you had a special kind of appeal in um, those cases we, under which the Court of Appeal could look at the whole of the evidence um, and not just whether there'd been an error of law in the summing up, you could really avoid miscarriages of justice. But the Birmingham Six and Guildford Four cases proved that to be wrong because the Court of Appeal did look at all the evidence in those cases and still there was a miscarriage of justice. So I changed my mind long before I became Home Secretary. And the controversies were much um, wider than those you've mentioned, which were insignificant in the scheme of things, um, because I changed um, the, the, the criminal justice system in very fundamental respects, meeting huge opposition along the way. And I, I went into the Home Office with a completely open mind. I'd never expected to be Home Secretary. I'd never made a speech on Home Office issues in the House of Commons. And I spent the first few months traveling around the country and going into the canteens in police stations and listening to what police officers were saying. And they told me they were completely demoralized. And they said to me, the system is completely broken. They said, if, if we manage to find someone who's committed a crime, which is not easy, the chances are the Crown Prosecution Service will tell us the evidence isn't strong enough to prosecute. If they say we can prosecute, the chances are that the person will be acquitted. And if by some miracle he's found guilty, the chances are he'll be sent away with sixpence from the poor box. And I set about changing all those things, making it easier to deter people 
from committing crimes in the first place. We had a nationwide rollout of closed-circuit television cameras. Very controversial, mm. but it had succeeded in Northumbria. And that helped if there's a camera looking, people are less likely to commit a crime. Mm -hmm. Then we made it easier to detect people if they had committed a crime. We introduced the first national DNA database in the world. And I remember going to see my opposite number in Washington, whose eyes popped out when I told him we had this national DNA database. Then um, when people came to trial, we made it easier to convict them, the guilty, without, um, without imperiling the innocent, not removing the right of silence, but making it possible for it to be referred to in court. So before this change, someone committed a burglary and said nothing at the time. And suddenly at the trial said for the first time, oh, actually, I thought I was entering my brother-in-law's house. <laughs> no one was allowed to say at the trial, why didn't you say that at the time? You weren't allowed. Prosecuting counsel wasn't allowed to ask that question. So I changed the law so that people prosecuting counsel was allowed to ask that question and the jury were allowed to take it into account in deciding whether someone was guilty or innocent. And that meant changing the caution. An official said, oh, you can't do this because it's far too difficult to change the caution. So I drafted the new caution, which you now hear on every crime drama on television. Oh, really? I, I drafted it. You, you hear... Um a lot of complaints about officials in the Home Office and, and, and the, the failure. And I know that we've discussed this and your real sense is if you drive leadership from the top, then they will follow. Yes, that's exactly what happened. They were very difficult at the beginning, very difficult indeed. And there was one occasion when someone phoned the press office and asked for the Home Office line or something or other, and they were told, well, the Home Office line is A, B and C. But the Home Secretary's line is <laughs> <laughs> X, Y, and Z. Um, and it was, really like, it was like that at the beginning. But, um, and have, how did, have you coped with the, the sort of times when you've had criticism, very, very intense criticism lobbed at you, not only uh, in, your, in this role as home, and, and your, throughout your political career, particularly when you were also leader of the Conservative Party? I mean, how, how do you sort of cope with that? Because most people in life don't have such vitriolic attacks. Well, it is very hard, but you, you just have to keep going. You, um, you know, I suppose you have to have a, a pretty thick skin. It's why people say, which department did you enjoy most? And I say, enjoy is not the right word. <laughs> I enjoy myself when I'm watching Liverpool win a football match. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's, if you look back on it and you think you've made a difference, which is why we all go into politics, then you can look back on it with a certain degree of satisfaction because that's what you go in into politics to do. Yeah. But at the time, it is really hard pounding. Yeah, and very hard on the family. But uh, I know one of the things you are proud of, and most people don't, wouldn't associate you with the environment, but you were a, a very early champion of the environmental issues. Um, yes. Well, in particular... I was appointed Secretary of State for the Environment immediately after the 92 election. And um, that was in May. And a month or so later, the first 
Earth Summit, as it was called, the first United Nations Environmental Conference, was to take place in Brazil. And it all hung, the success of it, on whether President George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, would attend. And whether he attended would depend entirely on whether the United States would sign the Climate Change Convention, which was the first international mm. agreement on climate change. So I was told to go to Washington and persuade the American administration to sign the convention. And I had the most single interesting day of my entire political career because I visited, they were very open with me. I went to see the energy secretary who said it would be a disaster if we signed this convention. I went to see the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, who said it's essential we sign this convention. <laughs> and they all disagreed with each other. The only thing they could agree on was that it all depended on my meeting at the State Department at the end of the day. And I had lunch at our ambassador's residence with two aides from the White House with completely opposite views. The only thing they could agree on was the importance of the meeting at the State Department at the end <laughs> of the day. So off I went to the State Department. And um, I met um, Robert Zellick, who later became president of the World Bank. He was number three in the State Department. We sat down and we went through the Climate Change Convention draft line by line. And we changed a few things, changed the order of things, fiddled around with it. And we, in the end, we reached agreement. And then I went to the White House and I saw Brent Scowcroft, who was the president's national security advisor at that time, I think. And he said, well, if it's good enough for Bob, it'll be good enough for the president. And off I went to Dulles and I flew home, went into the office next morning. First thing, Bob Zellick's on the phone. And he said, the president wants a change. I said, okay, what's the change? And he told me. And I said, no, that's completely out of the question. You know the Europeans would never wear that. That's completely out of the question. And he said, uh, well, I knew you'd say that, and it'll be okay. <laughs> and it was okay. And they signed the convention, and President Bush went to Rio. I went to Rio. John Major came to Rio. And um, that set the ball rolling. Mm, incredibly great moment. Anyway, Major loses the next election. There's a leadership contest. That's when I first got to know you pretty well. It looked like you were going to do a deal with Haig, and he agreed, and then Haig decided that he didn't want to do a deal with you for the leadership. He then went on to become leader. We then ended up with Ian Duncan Smith, and I remember having a full-scale row with you, and I said I was going to leave the party. No disrespect to Ian, but he wasn't a great leader, and I said, you're going to be the next leader, and you accused me of utter disloyalty, and how dare I say those sort of things. Later on that year, you became leader, which was to everyone's great relief and pleasure. And it was a fascinating time, an enormous achievement for you. And I'm so glad your mother was alive to witness it. And I, th I know you were. Yes. Um, but of course, I failed because the only objective, the only, the only objective of every leader of the opposition is to become prime minister. And, um, and I didn't. Um, but we did. We we managed to make a quite a bit of progress, and I like to think we established a platform from which David Cameron could go on and win into 
you've, you've slightly given the game away <clears> by <throat> saying you established a platform to let David Cameron. Yes, <laughs> that's right, from, from which David could build and yeah. win in 2010, yeah. yes. And it was a great achievement. And, of course, David used to work for you. He did. Um, and you promoted him and George into key positions in the election campaign. I was your party treasurer at the time and survived the cull. One of the the things that you will always be remembered for is your personal loyalty to people. It's been a great mark and a part of that and your integrity. Uh, and those are the two things of many that I shall always take away from knowing you for so long. You, you say you've mellowed, but I assure you, Sandra and I don't think you've mellowed. Um, I think there's I think so much. Does. Fight, I think she does. I, I think she has her moments. <laughs> but you're still there for the fight, aren't you? Uh, when it's necessary, yeah. I mean, there are occasions when I don't delude myself that I have any real influence these days. But if I have a smidgen at certain points, um, I like to use it. Well, you had an influence in the Brexit campaign, which was something you were involved in and keen to see happen. Yes, I was. Um, I was because I think David Cameron's failure to obtain any meaningful reform or any concessions of any kind from the European Union really meant to me that it was never going to change. I, my, my preferred outcome would have been a real reform of the European Union um, to make it a much more flexible thing. And then we could have remained a member. But since they obviously weren't interested in that and were determined to try and create some kind of European super state, I didn't want to be part of that. Well, Michael, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you. And thank you for the considerable extent to which you helped me along the way. <laughs>